May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. This week, I have two guests with me. One is a return visitor, my partner, Amy Goldsmith from our intellectual property department. Hello, Amy. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm great. And Amy has brought with her a special guest, Brian Califano, a CPA and co-founder and managing partner of Accelerating CFO. He'll tell you a little bit more about that later. And the three of us are recording from different places as we're working from different places these days. You might actually hear in the background someone cutting the lawn outside of my house, part of the joys of working from home, occasional interference from whatever. But we're going to talk about that a little bit this week. We're going to talk about the implications of this new world of remote business access that we find ourselves in, in 2020, in a direction perhaps that we were heading anywhere way, but certainly that's been accelerated by the circumstances. Uh, and to begin that discussion, we're going to talk about some new legislation Amy's going to bring us up to date on called the SHIELD Act. You want to start by telling us about that, Amy? Yes. So in 2019, there was a Privacy Act before the New York State Legislature, and it didn't pass. So for the moment in New York State, there is no state law governing privacy, although that may be part of a 2020 or given COVID, a 2021 legislative agenda, because I dare say there are some more important bills in front of the state legislature right now. However, the SHIELD Act, and its full name is Stop Hacks and Improve Electronic Data Security, was signed into the law by the governor in 2019. And what SHIELD did was it modified the data breach notification law and the state technology law governing the data security obligations, basically, of every business that owns licenses or is a custodian of electronic records, which include the private information of New York residents. Now, I didn't say New York businesses. When you talk about private information, what are you talking about? Well, first of all, Anyone who has this private information of New York residents is subject to the SHIELD Act. So the act is much broader than, oh, this is a New York Act and it only covers New York businesses. No, 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 no. It covers any business that might have private information. And Rich asked, what is private information? Well, it is defined as personal information that has a data element, which means it's online, not anything you might have in paper. When the data element is not encrypted, or if it's encrypted, if it were hacked, the hack included access to the encryption key. It's defined really broadly. Any information concerning a natural person which, because of name, number, personal mark, or other identifier, can be used to identify such natural person. And there's a whole laundry list. This includes driver's license, social security, financial account, biometric. Now, everyone has heard of biometric, but what does that really mean? Fingerprint, voice print, your retina image, your iris image, 
or any other unique physical or digital way of finding out that who that person is. And it also encompasses a username or email address if it's in combination with a password or security question. So if public information is made available via federal or state or local government records, then it's not considered private information. But this is the kind of information somebody might give to set up an account somewhere or 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 that might identify them as having that account. Yes. So again, this relates to online records, not paper records. And it is really, really broad. What does the SHIELD Act tell businesses about that kind of information? It basically says you must do everything that the act prescribes to protect it. And it's any business. The business can be located anywhere in the world. If it has information about New York residents, then it's the subject of the SHIELD Act. And that's very similar to the European data regulation known as GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act. So they all have this extraterritorial jurisdiction. So the SHIELD Act was designed so that if there is unauthorized access to or acquisition of any New Yorker's electronic records, that there is a notification requirement. I want to just be clear about the coverage. I think you've, I think you've been clear, but if you're running a business out of your attic in Colorado and you have social security numbers of New York residents that you've somehow acquired through that business, you're covered by this. You are covered by this act, yes. Okay. And if there's a breach of your computer, you're going to tell us, you have, to, you have to provide some notice. Correct. The act goes through a whole panoply of which data breaches require notification. So unauthorized access requires notification. So let's think about that. Just the access part. The person breaching doesn't have to take anything. If you think that there's unauthorized access, that someone is pinging your system, certain notification requirements may come into play. How are you supposed to provide that notice? So if you think that there was unauthorized notification, you and by an unauthorized person, let me make that very clear. Authorized people, it wouldn't be considered unauthorized access. If you're allowed to look at that information, that's okay. But let's say there's unauthorized access. So you, there's a standard notification form that New York State provides, and you have to notify the person whose information may have been accessed in an unauthorized fashion. Plus, in certain circumstances, you have to notify certain divisions of New York State. Does the SHIELD Act also have new security protocols? It does. So the business, again, this is a business that just has New Yorkers information, must implement what is called a data security program. And You have to have a data security manager who coordinates everything, who is looking to identify foreseeable risks, who looks at the safeguards that are implemented or may need to be implemented, trains and manages employees, and 
if it's not an internal security service, hires an external security service to handle this new security protocol. I understand those protocols for a lot of businesses, but what about in the context of a small business? So small businesses also have to comply with the SHIELD Act. Now, what does the Act consider to be a small business? Fewer than 50 employees, less than $3 million in gross annual revenues for the last three years, or less than $5 million in total assets. Now, those businesses have a different level of compliance. And I quote, the small business complies if the small business's security program contains reasonable administrative, technical, and physical safeguards that are appropriate for the size and complexity of the small business, the nature and scope of the small business's activities, and the sensitivity of the personal information the small business collects from or about consumers. I do love a statute that has the word reasonable in it. Isn't that great? Absolutely. That's super helpful. What does reasonable mean? (laughs) I cannot answer that question for you. Certainly uh, using a standard Yahoo or Gmail account. Well, under many circumstances, that may not be considered reasonable if that's the way you monitor and run your business. So this is going to be quite interesting as litigation starts up under under this act. It sounds like it'll be interesting. And of course, it ties in more broadly with this notion that people more than ever are working from their own homes or outside of the office context and maybe using computers that aren't all on the same network using various apps to communicate and to do business. And let's bring Brian into this conversation because we want to talk about that more, more generally, Brian. What, yeah. what are the kinds of things that you're thinking about in this world of remote business that we find ourselves in? Yeah, Richard, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think that Amy you know, provided a really solid foundation for why all businesses really need to address this. Three or four years ago, you know, most, most, most small businesses would have said, you know, the concept of cyber liability, you know, we're too small or we don't have much to lose or they're not going to come after me. They're going to go after the big guys. And I think as, as time has evolved, a couple of things have happened. Number one, the speed at which computers and these hackers can really hack into a system has exponentially grown. So the time and effort to spend on just uh, you know a, a broad, broad breadth of smaller companies is a lot easier to do. Number one, and number two, I, I, the major problem I have um, conveying to my clients and their owners is convincing them that this is a really important issue. That it's important to the biggest thing I try to employ to my my clients is getting cyber liability insurance. And why is that? Well, there's two reasons. The first one is. You know, the, the, of course, the, assur- the assurance that if, God forbid, somebody got into their systems and hacked and they had malware or ransomware or if somehow a leak of information got out, they would be able to recoup. You know, it wouldn't be financially disastrous. They would have PR issues and potentially some data issues they'd have to explain to their clients. But from a financial perspective, they're protected. But the second, in my opinion, the, the greater attribute of having cyber liability insurance is that it forces you as a company 
to really address every aspect of the data security that you have. For example, you know when you go through uh, when you go through cyber security, uh, cyber liability insurance, excuse me, you have to you know adhere to certain practices, such as having a data manager, having somebody you know a throat to choke, as I like to say, who can answer and address all issues addressing to the digital your digital platforms and what goes on. So it forces you to at least, if you can't afford to have an in-house body. You can definitely afford to have an outsource company, and there's several of them these days, that you can use in a cost-effective manner that would adhere to the, the requirements of the insurance company uh, you know, writing a policy for you. Brian, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the insurance is valuable because it gives you protection in case of an event, but also that the process of obtaining the insurance is a good way to see if you have sufficient practices in place to protect against that kind of security breach. Yes, 100%. And the only other thing I would add is it also forces executives to really think about how they access their data and how they protect it. Because at the end of the day, it's usually the owner or the CEO or the president of a company that has the most valuable information, the most secretive information on his or her cell phone, computer, laptop, iPad, et cetera. And those are the ones that really need to be aware of it and get trained on it and make sure that when you have a top, a top-down attitude about cyber, you know, just, uh, you know, data security. Okay, well, that's great. And, and I understand from the corporate standpoint needing to address both the security aspect and certainly the insurance aspect. But for both of you, Brian and Amy, can you maybe give us some practical suggestions for people who are working at home on a regular basis for the first time in their lives, what should they be thinking about that they can do themselves to protect information? Well, I'll go first. I think there's a couple of quick things, like easy things you can do. For example, like having the most current current software application, having the most current version with all the security apps that you get on there. You know, when you get those annoying, you know, update your Excel or Microsoft uh, 365 or your software on your phone, a lot of people just ignore it or bypass it. As simple as that sounds, that's like one of the most basic things you can do. And it costs you no money. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. And you'd be surprised how many companies are out there that are using older versions of Excel and Word and Internet Explorer, which has huge security patches that haven't been fixed and it just exposes their company, number one. And number two, what I've been starting to, you know, in, in this day and age now with everybody working remotely, what I've been advising my clients to do when it's financially practical, and it's really not a huge investment, is to, is to invest in the, in the application and the security firewalls that each of their employees have. Depending on the size of the company and the employees and how distributed they are, it's really important that they have both not just like a Dropbox or uh, a centralized file system, whether it's through uh, Microsoft or Amazon or any of those cloud services based, because that's usually relatively safe and they always keep the top notch applications there. But you also have to look at the home where you're accessing it. You know, does, do your employees have the most current software? Do they have the fastest uploads and downloads out there? And, you know, it's not a huge investment to pay for an employee's you know, security, their internet access, because if you can assure yourself that they have the most upgraded amounts, it's going to just further safeguard anybody from going around either endpoint, either from the top infrastructure or through a computer, you know, that's being done. 
Are you seeing other ways that people are using the protect confidentiality while they work remotely? Absolutely. I mean, we are advising our clients, and it may sound basic on a number of different ways in which their employees can protect confidential information, including the personal information that the business has an obligation to protect under the SHIELD Act. And the first is really the most basic. Now you're having people work through their home systems. Typically, a home system is not password protected. So the first thing that you know, we did when we set up our home systems was they have to be passworded. If you're away from your computer, log off. Don't leave it open. You should make sure your home Wi-Fi routers are secure. And again, this is the obligation of the business to help out the employee to make sure that the proper security protocols are in place. You should not be mixing your work emails with your home email account. So let's say you're having difficulty accessing your office and you think, oh, I'll just take my phone and I'll you know, send that document that I sent off last night to my colleague who needed to review it. I'll just send that document to my home email and I'll review it on my home system. That is also not a good security practice. So your work documents should be saved at work, not saved on your home system. You don't want to download confidential information onto thumb drives. Thumb drives can walk away. If you've printed any confidential information, you really want to keep that locked up or shredded after you've used it. And then the normal ones, you better make sure that the counterparty has signed a non-disclosure agreement if the counterparty is outside of your company before you start discussing it. Don't let those protocols fall by the wayside because everyone is sitting at home. We're all doing much more video conferencing than we've ever done, and we're doing it from our homes. Do either of you have suggestions for security protocols that people might employ when they're video conferencing? Well, first of all, hopefully you're in a private area. Other people in your household and other, you know, perhaps employees of your household are not able to listen in, especially where it concerns trade secrets. You don't want to give up a trade secret, you know, when you didn't expect that that's what you were doing inadvertently. So try to arrange it so that you're in a private area. With regard to use of Zoom or any other WebEx platform, absolutely use the password. So if you get a Zoom link, require that the password be entered so that you can then have access to the Zoom meeting if you're talking about sensitive topics with your coworkers or with a client. Third, enable the waiting room so that you know that that's the person who is actually allowed to come into your meeting. Brian, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think the only thing is I will say that, you know, uh, one thing that that my clients are doing for multiple reasons, security being among them, is using integrated messaging and, you know, teamwork such such as Microsoft Teams and Slack are the two biggest popular ones for my clients in that small business community who are, you know, who want to be able to have security, have secure discussions and have it maintained to the, you know, the optimum level with the changing times. And both Slack and Microsoft Teams are two examples of companies that are, have been doing it for a while, have perfected it. And while there's always people trying to hack into it, they're constantly trying to upgrade their systems. Everyone's working from home. 
does the company's employee handbooks take care of working from home? Or is there a big gap with regard to what employees should be doing? How have you notified the employees? So updating the handbooks and any other legal policies are really important. You know, there are BYOD policies, bring your own device. Now people are accessing at home, but the policies may not actually be in place for the business to notify the employee as to their responsibilities. And remember, the SHIELD Act does require you to train employees. So this all needs to be looked at. Right. And it may have seemed for a while like this might just be a couple month a couple month change of pace for everybody but it looks like something longer term is at play and companies would be well advised to think about all of their policies and procedures if they're going to continue having their workers working remotely Brian why don't you tell us a little bit about your company and what you do for your job yeah, thank you, Rich. Uh, so what we do at Accelerating CFO is we we work with companies who are between the million and 40 million in revenue who can't justify hiring a CFO on a full-time basis. So they hire us to kind of fill in for their CFOs to either oversee their accounting and budgeting staff or actually outsource it entirely to us and we have our staff take care of it for them. And we act as their financial right-hand people. So for all the owners who need somebody to talk to with their businesses, a lot of small business owners don't have, you know, somebody within their business they can trust. You know, it's hard to really talk about finances and and what direction your business is going to take. Maybe you made a bad decision or investment. And so many people's personal lives and their business lives get intertwined. So they don't feel comfortable talking about it with their controller or with their chief operating officer. So we come in kind of with an outsider's perspective and with the, you know, with the best practices and, and, and procedures that, you know, we have learned over many years of working with Fortune 500 companies. And Amy, remind us a little bit about the scope of your practice. Sure. So I'm co-chair of the Intellectual Property Group at Tartar, Krensky & Drogan, and we are a mid-sized law firm with general practice focus. So our Intellectual Property Group works on patents, copyrights, trademarks, privacy, cybersecurity, and we also have a reputation defense practice. So we basically cover the whole square with regard to intellectual property work and have a lot of fun doing it. All right. Well, I feel like we should give a cameo to the guy cutting my lawn and the bird that's been circling around Brian, wherever (laughs) he is. Oh, sorry. Uh, That's okay. It's a lovely sounding bird. Uh, but I don't think include the bird. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, he probably had better things to say than I did. But, uh. I think instead we're going to move on to closing arguments, as we call them here, where we offer a takeaway for our listeners on the topics we've discussed. So, Brian, I'll throw it to you first. Thank you so much. So, at the end of the day, if there's one thing that you guys can take away from who's listening to this, if you're a small business owner, is enlist of your insurance broker a cybersecurity policy that will protect you and your employees from any potential hacking as much as you can from the outside. You know, you can't say anymore that it's not cost effective because these days, you know, through the analysis that we have done within the firm, you know, it's going to cost you approximately between a half a percent or 1% of your total revenue to, in our opinion, get the adequate insurance that you need, as well as um, train 
and empower your employees either through their own computers or their own systems at home to really adequately protect yourself. And that's a really small, relatively small investment to make to save your customers' data, your reputation, and your financial potential financial ruin. Amy? So in line with uh, getting cyber insurance or looking at your cyber insurance policy, if you have one already, conduct a self-assessment of your existing security protocols so that you make sure that everything is the best it can be with respect to how you're protecting your, the private information that you're collecting and, and also your confidential information. Also, if you are a business that is collecting personal information, private information from other than New York residents, it's a best practice to actually segregate the information so that if you just need to pull up New York residents or California residents or you know, German residents, you can easily do that rather than spending hours conducting a search. Second, you need to look at the existing protocols and compare them with the protocols that the SHIELD Act requires and make sure that they match. Third, you have to make sure you understand SHIELD Act notification policy because if it happens, you shouldn't be surprised at your obligations. And fourth, consult with legal and IT to make sure that you're doing everything appropriately. And I'm going to add one more takeaway as I listen to both of you talk about this topic. I have a broad takeaway, which is that all of these pain in the ass things that none of us want to do, like set good passwords, use a waiting room on Zoom, shut down your system at night, update all of your apps and programs when they say to update, go buy insurance. Turns out all of those things matter and are important to protecting confidentiality and protecting your business, right? Absolutely. Amen. So we're going to have to keep doing this the hard way. All right, Brian, Amy, thank you very much for joining us today. Really good to have you aboard. Take care, everybody. You too. Take care. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs> <laughs>